0: To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory for ever. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the beginning, up until the Tower of Babel, the call of Abraham through the end of the Old Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, up until the Acts of the Apostles. The story of the Gospels is that Jesus dies, and then three days later, God gives him back to us. It's the abandoning, betraying, and denying disciples who are the first to host The risen Jesus, they break bread with Jesus, they eat with glad and generous hearts. As Easter people, they live on this side of the empty tomb, and they know that they can't go back to how things used to be. For 40 days after Easter, they meet with the risen Jesus, they learn from him, he teaches them, and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Ten days later, on Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, the Holy Spirit arrives. Demonstrating the wild nature of God's impossible possibility. The Spirit, against all odds, moves and grows and spread day by day. People are attracted to this radical witness of living together, of sharing things in common, hearing the good news, the declaration about where real power resides. Ecclesias start, that's the word for gatherings, it's where we get the word for church. They start to sprout up like seeds scattered by the sower. Beloved communities of forgiveness and peace and mercy and grace, sacrament, word, they start to show up all over the place and they begin to bear fruit all over the Mediterranean. And as the church grows, so do her problems. So do her enemies. First, there is infighting that takes place. These people that are part of the ecclesia, the church, they have questions well, what does it actually take to be part of the church? Who is in and, and who is out? How can we know if someone's really faithful or not? It's kind of funny how we've been asking the same questions for 2,000 years. Who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong? Peter, the great denier of Christ-turned-rock of the church, he has a vision. It's a vision that still rattles our self-imposed ecclesial cages today. Cornelius, Cornelius, A Roman centurion, one outside the covenant people, a Gentile, he's faithful. He believes in this God he hears about and he has dreams and he does not understand what they mean so he calls to talk with Peter, the leader of the church. The next day, the next day after he's called, Peter is in the middle of praying on a roof When in the middle of his prayer, he sees a vision. The heavens are opened up. He sees what looks like a blanket, and on the blanket are animals of every size and every shape. And with the vision, there's a voice that says, What God has made clean, Peter, you must not call profane. I love Scripture. It says that he sees the vision, and he hears those words three times. If you know anything about Peter, Peter needs to hear things three times before it really sinks in. But he does not know what to make of this. This vision he has seen, these words that he has heard until he meets with Cornelius, the Roman centurion Gentile. And he realizes as he's meeting with Cornelius that everything he thought about the gospel was wrong. Whatever he imagined was unclean and unfit for the kingdom is exactly what the kingdom is made out of. Peter wonderfully says, famously, I now understand that God shows no partiality because jesus is lord of only a few of course that's not what he says jesus is lord of all god shows no partiality and then peter takes water and he baptizes cornelius He goes against everything his faith had taught him. He does something he knows, or at least he thinks he's not supposed to do. He, a Jew of Jews, baptizes a Gentile. And not just Cornelius. I mean, once the party gets started, he invites the whole house to come forward, and they all get dunked. The Spirit is moving all over the place. Now, the church, of course, hears what Peter's done. They they fight about it. They argue about it. They fight some more about what it all means. But no matter what they do, no matter what they say, the church just keeps growing. And yet again, as the church grows, so do her enemies. But why would anyone ever persecute the church? I mean, the church is just a bunch of nice people getting nicer all the time. Yeah, they they share food every once in a while. Sometimes they get out the super soakers and they get everybody soaked. But why would anyone ever be an enemy of the church? Why would anyone ever want to persecute the church? Well, I think because the church bothers people. Because when you start living for other people, when you care more about the needs and the wants and the hopes and the dreams of other people than your own, when you start to actually practice grace and practice charity, it is so foreign that it bothers people. It calls into question those who are in power, how they got their power and how they keep their power. In short, it doesn't do well to have people saying that a dead and risen Jew is Lord and King of the universe when the coin of the realm says actually Caesar is Lord and King of the universe. Moreover, the powers and principalities who condemned Jesus to death now look like fools because their normative tools to stop rabble-rousing no longer work. The cross and the grave could not contain him, And so, there's a Jewish Pharisee His name is Paul. He's one of the chief architects of suppressing the movement of the spirit in the church. He begins a rampage of persecution. He notably oversees the stoning of a young man named Stephen. Paul is very good at his job. So much so that he catches word that there are some who belong to the way in Damascus, and he begins to travel, and while he's on his way there, the heavens open up, a light blinds him and knocks him to the ground, and then he hears a voice. Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? For three days, three days, Paul can neither see nor speak until a disciple named Ananias rather reluctantly heals him of his affliction and baptizes Paul in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And just like that, the great persecutor of the church becomes her greatest spokesperson. Paul takes the gospel, the good news, all over the Roman Empire. He initiates new faith communities everywhere he travels. He sets aside leaders to take over when he leaves, and then he moves wherever the Spirit calls him next. And as those churches do the work of the church, as they break bread, as they baptize, as they hold things in common, as they worship, questions arise. The same kinds of questions that Peter is dealing with. Who's in? Who's out? How do we know what is what? And so the churches begin to write letters to their friend Paul. With their questions, Paul, in turn, writes letters in response. All of these epistles, they teach, they encourage, they proclaim the good news, and the letters become very popular. So popular that churches share their letters with other churches, other leaders start to write down their own thoughts about theology, and thus is created the rest of the New Testament, except for the very last book, which we'll talk about next week. So everything I just told you is... Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John and Jude. We're only one book away from the end. The Bible as Bart loved to say is the strange new world of God. With every page we turn, we discover more and more about the wild and the wondrous God we worship. And in no place is this more evident than the Acts of the Apostles and the letters that round out the New Testament. Because the eruption and the arrival of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, it sends reverberations through the church that we are still feeling today. God is on the loose. I think that would be a great subtitle for this part of the Bible. God is on the loose. The tearing open of the heavens at Jesus' baptism, very, very famously, the the heavens are are torn apart. I hope you noticed while I was talking that every time the Spirit has a call, it it describes that the heavens are being ripped. At at Pentecost, the, the heavens are opened up. When Peter sees his vision, the vision comes because the heavens have been torn. When Paul is struck by light, it says, the light comes from heaven. Every one of these is a reminder that whatever protective barrier we thought there was between God and us, it's gone. God is unwilling to be confined to sacred spaces because God is on the loose, turning things upside down. God can't even be contained by the church. it's odd sometimes you can take a step back from it and, and think about how God does so many ungodly things in the Bible. God chooses not to remember our sins. God throws away the ledger against us. God becomes sin for us that he might save us from our sins. God even dies for us. And that's just in the Gospels. Once the book of Acts comes, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, everything just ratchets up to 11. Whatever is unleashed at Easter, whatever shakes the disciples out of their stupor on Pentecost, it grabs hold of Peter and Paul and says, I'm turning the world upside down. You know, that's how the first Christians were described. Before anyone's ever called a Christian, even before they're they're called being members of the way, in Acts 17, there's leaders in the community, they're getting mad because these people are acting so strange and they, they bring them to the authorities They say, you need to take care of these people. And the authorities say, well, what have they done? And they say, they're trying to turn the world upside down. Are we? Are we trying to turn the world upside down? Are we content with how things are? Acts, all these letters at the end of the New Testament, they are a great and wondrous reminder of the God who is on the loose. That God is constantly opening our eyes and ears to what we did not know. That God is in the business of expanding the kingdom beyond our wildest dreams or even our limited hopes. Peter and Paul, sometimes we read their words and we think, oh, that, that, it's all said and done. But their theology, there are never starting points. If you read the New Testament, they are changing constantly. Peter's understanding of the nature of Jesus or the scope of the church, it changes. Paul literally persecutes the church and then he becomes the chief evangelist. These are the two primary leaders in the early church and they revise and recast their convictions in light of what they experience. In other words, their theology changes because of what happens. Their theology isn't stagnant. It is growing and moving. Without Cornelius and a vision, without Damascus and a reluctant disciple, we would not have what we have as the church. There's an openness and a fluidity to the proclamation of the gospel inside the New Testament that is sadly absent in the church today. Whether we want to admit it or not, a lot of people in the church already believe that we believe whatever we need to believe. We've created these institutions and systems that are marked by stability rather than fluidity. We expect not to be surprised because we've so compartmentalized our hopes and dreams and what we think God can do. And then today, God gathers us here that we might hear the Scripture that we might reimagine and remember what God is saying. Because the church of Acts is set on a course that it cannot fathom, it cannot predict, it cannot control, because the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, it changes everything. And the grammar in that sentence is important. It's not that Jesus changed everything, past tense, even though he certainly did. It's that Jesus changes, present tense, everything. Peter is living his best life. He's fishing with his brother. What could be more fun than fishing with your brother? Then when Jesus shows up, says, follow me. Peter is so sure he knows what the Messiah is supposed to do and what the Messiah is supposed to say, and then Jesus calls him Satan. Peter is convinced of who the church is for, and then the Spirit opens up his vision. I mean, Paul's got a good life. He's living a good life. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's good at his job. And then he's blinded by the light. And God says, I have a different job for you. And it's not just in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament too. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is minding his business, just trying to stay awake during worship. None of you know what that's like. And the heavens open up and he hears God Almighty speak to him. In every one of these stories, every call that happens in the Bible, all the calls that we experience in our life, it's just the God who shows up. And in showing up, transforms everything so that even people like us can move from where we are to where we can be. I don't know how it happened. I don't. There's lots of reasons. I don't know fully how it happened, but it seems like our notion of God has dwindled down to some instrumental, utilitarian, divine essence who's only ever moderately helpful. Lord, I really need a parking space. A God who can exist without making our lives any different. Again and again, we come to the Bible, we read these stories, but we don't really ever expect God to getting around to doing much of anything. Certainly not showing up in a worship service to place a hot burning coal on our lips. Definitely not a midday vision of animals of every shape and size. And absolutely not blinding us with a light during our morning commute. When C.S. Lewis was converted to Christianity, he described it as being surprised by joy. He was surprised. By Joy. Robert Jensen, another theologian, says that's how we can tell the difference between the living God and whatever foolish, dead notion we have of God. A fake, uncaring, unacting God will never surprise us. Let me be the one to tell you our God is full of surprises. Full of surprises. Can you imagine how surprised Peter must have felt? Thinking about everything he'd experienced, everything he knew as a Jew, taking water in his hands and baptizing a Gentile. Can you imagine how surprised he must have been in that moment? Can you imagine how surprised Paul must have been going from being the persecutor of the church, the one trying to stomp it out, to then one day writing to the church in Galatia, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me. Who gave himself for me. I wonder how surprised all of you are to be in this place on this day, to be named and claimed by the grace of God. God is full of surprises. Full and full of surprises. Surprises because this is how God does what God does in those surprising moments when we're going through life in our very comfortable ways and we're just looking after ourselves thinking we've got it all figured up, there is out of nowhere light a voice a summons it all comes from the God who is on the loose in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit one God now and forever Amen